Welcome to the Lighthouse Conversations, a podcast featuring entrepreneurs and tastemakers from the world of arts and culture, tech, and of course, food. I'm your host, Hashem Montasser. If you're enjoying our show, please share it with a friend who might find it interesting, or give us a shout by tagging us on Instagram at the Lighthouse underscore AE. I'm joined today by Manan Ataya, who serves as Director General of the Sharjah Museums Authority, where she oversees management of a whopping 16 museums across the Emirate. Her role involves, amongst other things, documenting and consolidating the artistic and cultural history of this region. In 2018, she was awarded the Order of Arts and Letters by the Republic of France for a contribution to culture, and she's a member of the Board of Trustees of her alma mater, Hamilton College. We cover a number of topics on this episode, ranging from her upbringing in Dubai to her mandate at the SMA. But what stood out to me the most was how honest Manel was in discussing the subject of mental health, both for her personally and as an often overlooked subject, especially amongst high-functioning individuals. The first thing that struck me when we spoke, we had spoken a few times, but it was a slightly longer conversation, the level of curiosity you have. Yeah. So you seem to be insatiably curious. I don't exaggerate, but I think that's no, an that's, accurate description. Yeah, I would use that. And interested in many different things. Where did this come from? Is this innate? Is this something you've learned over the years? Is it a genetic disease? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny you call it a disease because it is a bit of a curse and a blessing. I think um, the curse is that when you're interested in a lot of things, it makes you feel very frustrated when you can't kind of... Um, you didn't finish anything. Yeah, you didn't end. finish something, or you're always your your mind is constantly thinking about stuff, and it, it won't let something go. I, I definitely think it's a <laughs> blessing. I mean, yeah. I think that uh, to me, I always said that that I probably the the most valuable trait I have seen in people has been uh, curiosity. Both my parents, but my mother was sort of curious. My dad was curious more intellectually. She was curious both intellectually and socially. She yes. wanted to know everything, and I kind of grew up with that. And uh, um, it's interesting because you think it's the norm, but as I kind of got to meet a lot of people, I realized not everybody has that kind no. of level of interest. Yeah. That's okay but too. But it can be very isolating. And I think that's what why I did a lot of things alone. Because what I was curious in at my age, let's say, at the, being 12 or 14 or 16, was not the common interest of like a lot of other people. Do you think if you were growing up today, it would have been different? Because one of the things that strikes me is you're very curious you're also very focused. Yeah. And do you think that it has to do with growing up in a period where ultimately your options were somewhat limited? Yes. I mean, you know, now, because I mean, I, I am, I'd like to say I'm relatively still young, even in this no, day. No, of course in, in you this are. Day, just, oh, no, I'm just kidding. But we I mean, just didn't grow up with Google, right? Yeah, but I can use all that stuff. And sure. I, it, I think it makes it harder for me to keep my attention because there's so much information yeah. out all there. Of us, yeah, and it, it makes it even. It even makes that obsession greater. If I look up something now, let's say I watched um, a film about a particular, you know, just watch a regular film, and I thought, oh, I really love the cinematography of this film. Who was who was a director? Then I read the director. Then I'm I don't just read. Okay, this is a director. I go, what's his personal life like? What was his career life? What was his education? And then I'll click on things like it'll say, oh, he's the brother of this person who's also a director. Yeah, you then, go to the rabbit hole. And then, yeah, and then it, exactly, and then it just goes. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do. T I should tell you that I remember one of the greatest gifts my dad bought us, and it was a very strange gift at the time, a proper like library encyclopedia set. Oh yeah, we had one of those. I didn't know any of, none of my friends had that. 
And I remember he gave it to um, my older sister, who was like very book smart. Like Encyclopedia Britannica series, yeah, exactly. the heavy ones. Yes, yeah. the heavy one. It was, a gre- it was beautiful. It, had green, it was green. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're like and leather bound. Very heavy, yeah. yeah. And whenever she wasn't in her room, I'd go in there. And I'd like look at the books, but I remember I I, I kind of formulated this sort of um, thing where I'd say, okay, this week is you know M week. So then I'd go in there yeah. and I take the M um, book off the shelf, and every day I would just randomly you know just go with like with my finger and click you know just sort of not click obviously, but point at something and see a word, and then I'd read about it, and then I that would be my like my interest and my focus of that day would be how can I learn about this particular word? Can I just tell you that this is not as weird as you think it is? Okay, because <laughs> I, I remember distinctly in my childhood, a dinner party where I went with my mom and she had a friend who passed away a few years ago who uh, was reading the encyclopedia and she was apparently doing that too. And I remember going to this dinner party and he said, so Malak, I'm at M, where are you? And I, obviously, oh, none of us knew the kidding. context, you know, and she had to trump him, of course. I'm at O. <laughs> and, and, you know, I mean, so I think that's not very far from what you're saying. And this was their way of basically acquiring new yeah, vocabulary yeah. and learning more about the world, which is kind of a pre-Google Google. Yes, exactly. It's not that I, I do it because I feel like I need to just have these things or acquire this knowledge. It's more of the excitement of oh, what could this be? Yeah, and yeah. there's something I don't know about in the world. Like, it's just so exciting for me. And I think that's in a way what led to, to my interest in what I do, because, you know, museums were always about this. Oh, originally, about yeah, the cabinet of curiosity, actually, that's what they were called. Exactly. But how do you do it so that it's not overwhelming? Because, I mean, you manage today a, a large number of museums, not just yes, one. 16. 16 yeah. museums in Sharjah. Yeah with their different programs and their different agendas. And you're a very curious person. So do you just sit there at the beginning of the year and, you know, obviously you have a team that you work with. Right. But I mean, I I guess I'm trying to understand, you know, that interplay between being curious and being probably somewhat of a perfectionist, yet having to put on those programs, which is a huge volume. And you can't possibly know everything about every programmatic event you have. True. I think the difference is I want to know about everything, Mm. which is, I think, for me, has made me successful. Because if I, I feel if I was only interested in a particular area, then I probably would let a lot of things kind of, you know, slip, slip, exactly. And I, um, or I just wouldn't care. And I think I would lose a lot of passion for my work. I think for me, like, subhanAllah, I think it's, it's as if it was made for me that God put me in a position where I'm not dealing with one type of collection. I'm dealing with, like, 16 museums means a good range of about 10 different types of collections from heritage, you know, to Islamic collections, to archaeology, to modern art, to contemporary art. So in a way, it actually feeds what I already have with this need to to see all these different kinds of things, understand all of them, and then also see the connections between them. And even the themes you're choosing, I would imagine, are less boxed in. So, you know, one of the things that you see, again, in, in, in sort of markets, art markets are extremely... Um, fleshed out is everybody's boxed in a little box and you can't get out of that box oh yeah you know so we were speaking earlier today the fact that you could even stage exhibitions that sort of cut through modern and contemporary and I mean you know today again I'm just using a random example MoMA I mean it's very difficult to do right someone's going to call you from the modern department and say you know how dare you and then somebody from the classics you know so so those are the kind of fluidities that I feel here as a on your side, on the directing side and 
running major museums, but even on the collecting side, on the artistic side, that fluidity. Yes, because they're less bureaucratic. Less bureaucratic and, and lesser lines. Yes. So yes. we're able more to navigate. Flat ma- uh, yeah. Exactly. I think I, I also personally like more flat management style. I don't like the idea of too many layers. Uh, layers. I think everyone sh- should have a certain amount of trust to do their job. I think as much as people want to be involved and understand what other people are doing, they should do that. And I do believe that you do your job better if you're always understanding what people are doing. So just giving give an example of, of where I am right now, um, you know, even as a guest right now, I would really like to know what your technician does and how he does what he does and what does that machine actually do. It's He's very, it's very intriguing to me. I can me. just tell you this: the answer is nothing at <laughs> you all. You know, and then he's sleeping most likely. Are you are you awake? I mean, he's awake, but miracle of God. But like, how do how, you know? Like understanding everyone's job, and then you know what what does your other person do, and how does she film things and edit? Like, it's interesting to me. How long does these things take? Does it, how long does it take to edit a video? You know, is it a simple thing or is it a very tedious? Or it's a good point. So it's I like to see what people do because it's so easy to sit back and say, well, why didn't you do that? Or you could have done that, and people will be like, well, no, it takes this time. And and until you see it, until you're it's involved in it, you can really be very removed from the reality of what jobs that are critical and central to making kind of a, a big ship sail. Well, you know, people that's, often that's just focus true. on the captain, if you know what I mean. It and took three months not, of Farah leaving and us trying to do what she's doing there, ourselves to realize, there you for go. me to fully understand. Yes. I was like, oh my God. And appreciate <laughs> yeah. what she does. Yeah. I, mean, I, I hope we already had appreciated it, but definitely <laughs> we had a newly found appreciation yeah, yeah. for all these yeah intricate details of how it all comes together yes. that you obviously to some extent take for granted because the end product is something you're very happy with. Yes. But you're 100% right. And I think all of us kind of fall prey to this. Yeah. I'm going to shift gears here and go to a different phase uh, in your life. You grew up in Dubai and then you went to school in the U.S. Yes. And I think it was your first time living in the U.S. Yes, correct. And I have listened to a podcast that you were on. Yeah, my first. Um, That was my first podcast. Your first podcast. Thank you for sharing it, which was super interesting to me. And one of the moments you spoke about in the podcast was 9-11. Yeah. And um, I immediately, like it triggered a reaction in me. I was also in the States on 9-11. It was actually my first two months of business school. So I had oh, graduated wow. from undergrad. Oh, my goodness. But uh, literally, yeah. I remember that, I mean, first couple of days, actually, of business school. Yeah. So I want to kind of use that as a moment of how you felt during that period yeah. Because um, you had only been in the States for a couple of years. Yes. Obviously, don't identify as American. Yeah. You are an Arab Muslim, and you weren't even in a super diverse city uh, yeah. or, or environment, you know, like, I mean, New York obviously wasn't a great place to be at the time, but let's say, you know, other, other cities that are kind of more worldly where you blend in easily. How yeah. did you deal with that? You know... It's a funny thing. I, first of all, identity is a funny thing. And I just I should just say that I think we all have such um, multiple complex identities. And I always like this uh, idea that someone uh, in, a, in a TEDx talk, so I'm not taking her, her idea. I have to remember who she is. So I will look it up later and send it to you. But she says this lovely idea that, you know, the concept is not really where you're from or, or whatever, but you're, lo- you're local to wherever you've you've lived, wherever you have kind of set roots, even if it was for three months or for one year, or for five years, you're local to that place. And so it, you identify with it, it becomes part of you. But having said that, I think, you know, 9-11, it relates in that, 
you know, when something terrible happens, it starts to cause this divide between people. And then people start to really ask things like, well, where are you from? Yes. You know, because then it, it, it helps this divide, you know, gain strength. And um, if and of course, it gets worse. It's like people will be like, well, I don't care if you've lived in America all your life, or I don't care if you've been born here. You don't look like us. You're originally from, I don't know what country. So or worse, you attacked us. Yeah, so you don't... I mean, we yes. weren't very far from so that line, right? you don't belong here, or you're not, you know, you don't... Um, you know, you're not, you don't have an affinity with our feelings and et cetera, which was, of course, completely wrong. 100%. I mean, I remember when I talked about it, the other podcast, I remember using the word incident because I was afraid to use the word attack because I, I was going to get emotional. So I, I was like, I didn't want to say that, but um, it was a really terrible thing that happened. And um, those attacks that happened were just, you know, I think really shook the foundation for a lot of people and of course caused, you know, a lot of trauma for people for many years after. And, you know, we're not also immune to trauma in, in this part of the world. We've had many different people have gone through traumas in their countries because of conflict um, or terrorist attacks or whatever else. And what I remember feeling though um, at that time was just that there was there was a fear of, you know, that I was going to be labeled as something and that because of that label... Um, and were you? Yes, uh, there were there were times that it happened. And I remember just like very uncomfortable conversations with people um, that were, are not the kind that I worry... Like there's certain kinds of remarks I don't worry about. So if someone just says something very ignorant like, oh, you people are whatever, yeah. you know, I'm just like, okay, you know. <laughs> yeah. But if somebody says something really... More studied. Yeah, yeah, much more, much more, which I mentioned actually in an article I wrote about Edward Said and Orientalism and how that kind of impacted me. I talked about once um, being in school and how well, We some, need a whole podcast just to talk yeah. about that. I, <laughs> I want to do that but one. But I, I talked about a, a student who was, you know, extremely intelligent, was a government student and happened to live in my dorm in... She, she was talking to me because they were studying the Middle East at the time and um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And one thing she said to me, and she really meant it, and she went on and on about it, was this idea that, you know, suicide bombers are so common, you know, in, in, that, in, that, in, that, you know, in that part of the world or in, in that country because, you know, Arabs don't have the same f feeling of love like we we understand love, and I thought, what are you talking about? She's like, well, you know, it's like the the love that a mother has for a child if she's Arab is different than a mother an American has for her child, because this is why mothers can let their kids kill themselves. We would never let that happen because our concept of love is deeper; it's different. And I thought, are you in? Are, are you kidding me? Like. It is not different. It's absolutely the same. There's no such thing as a, a culture or people having a different, you know, regard for, for, for human, basic human feelings like fear, sadness, love, you know, remorse, whatever it might be. This is common across all humanity. You can't start saying that some people have this less than others. So it was a very, it really kind of shook me that this is how fundamentally she believed that. So, you know, it explained to her why these things happen rather than the real reason these things happen. Um, so it was, it was those types of conversations that used to get to me. And I think 20 after, I mean, 9-11, uh, I remember, because my birthday is on the 13th of September. So I remember it very well being just before my birthday and watching the news. And um, I remember, like, 
how many people I knew, of course, most of my closest friends from college were from New York. And I just panicked. I just thought, I don't know who, whom, how, who could have been hurt in this, um, let alone, you know, um, what happened. I think you don't have to have known people to have, you know, felt uh, the pain and the suffering people felt, but it's, you know, it was really real. And I think for many, many years after that, there was a lot of problems for Arabs going and, I, and traveling in particular. I you mean, know, to exactly to your point, was the I mean, worst, I, I think. You know, I was in Boston at the time. Um, and I had lived in New York for four years prior to that. So I had yeah. just come back to Boston. But so I used to travel to New York every weekend because all my friends were in New York. Yeah. And I remember after this happening, a friend of mine um, who is from New York, who's Jewish, not that that plays any role, but just to kind of put the sense, called me up and said, you know, I think it's better if you take the bus or the train. Oh, and he was clearly, you know, signaling that he thinks that if I got on a plane, um, you know, I could be putting myself at risk. Yeah and, yeah. and it hadn't even occurred to me. Yes. You know, I was literally booking my flight to LaGuardia. And uh, I said, you know what? You're right. And yeah. I, for, that next, for the next three months, only went to New York twice because on those two times, at first I took the train. When I got to New York, and I am relatively loud, as you can tell, I would be <laughs> leaving a restaurant, going on the street to speak on the phone. Oh, no, I and never. And for the first time, well, it didn't even occur to me, right? Because to it's not something speak I do in New Arabic, York. yeah. Yeah, and New York is like Cairo. I mean, it's very loud. There's noises everywhere. Yeah, so you kind of... So yeah. I went on the street and was speaking in Arabic, and for a single... And then I all of a sudden realized that eight people were looking at me. Yes, yes. And I became self-conscious. Of course. And it's interesting because my experience throughout the, the post-9-11 period had been generally extremely civilized. People were very open. I mean, I think being at yeah. Boston and, yeah. and Harvard was, was a good place, was yeah. very, felt very safe. Yet there was no, most definitely, and I see this now in retrospect, this feeling of... Um, unease yes and what i wind up doing is when i graduated from business school i actually moved to the uk moved to london and i think part of it was was that i mean before that was it better in the uk do you feel well i think before that i had this idea i'm going to go back to new york and yeah. everybody can be a new yorker yeah. in a way and because yeah. i grew up in cairo new york felt very comfortable yes and i think i subconsciously made that decision that i no longer feel like i want to be in new york and that it needs to heal, and I probably need to heal as well. Yeah. And I moved to the London, which was definitely, at the time, um, as an Arab, I felt, not that I, I, I just didn't feel as censored or self-conscious. Yes. And a lot of other people, not just Arabs, I mean, Europeans, etc., that lived in New York had moved to London as well. So London became, for a while, yeah. much more cosmopolitan than it used to be, visiting, if you recall that period. Yeah, quite a and few And then, friends. of course, years later, New York rehabilitated itself. Thankfully, it's a great city. But all of these things are things we take for granted. That's what I want to speak about. Yeah, I mean, that's something I like that you said just what you, what you said now about taking for granted, because I think, you know, it's something until that happened, I don't think I did. And I don't think a lot of people understood what it must feel like to be uh, from, a, let's say, a minority group or a marginalized group that has to worry about how you look, how you represent yourself, what you show or tell people or not. Or even speak. Feel as a spokesperson yeah, yeah. for it. Oh, you know, for I sure. never felt a spokesperson as an Arab or as a Muslim. And all of a sudden, all of us were forced in a relatively uncomfortable yeah, role of yeah. having to speak on behalf of a billion plus Muslims oh, yeah. I mean, or that, Arabs or a combination. That's a whole so, other, yeah, that's a whole other thing. But I, I'm, I was just concerned about, 
I never had to think about whether or not, for example, which, I mean, this is how bad it got. Like, first of all, yes, no speaking in Arabic. Normal, normal, uh, in my normal conversation in English, I will tend to say things like Alhamdulillah or SubhanAllah. And I would be very careful not to add those words. And especially if someone's listening, like you said, on an airplane, in a cab ride, whatever. No, inshallah, no Then there was like, I'd get off the plane from like Dubai and I'd remove all my tags I didn't want anyone to know Amazing, huh? I was on Emirates or whatever. I, I, I was so self-conscious so that when I got in there, he'd say, oh, where'd you come from? I'd be like, oh, I'm, I came from the UK. And I can only imagine for some people where it's, it's harder because maybe they don't speak English or they wear the hijab or whatever. It, it was terrifying to be in America during that time. Or they are, you know, 18 to 20 year old. Look uh, what's happening to Asians in America yes. now. I mean, the attacks. I mean, this is not a joke. Hate crime is serious. What's interesting in particular about Arabs, though, I feel that, you know, and of course, as you said, this has happened to, to black people in America. Yes. It has happened to Asians. Yeah. But there are constituencies there today that speak up and raise that awareness. Yes, correct. With us, that's not even the case. Yeah. So you fall into this kind of strange middle bracket yes. where you're not even seen as a minority, really. Yeah. You know, and except then, for maybe now because there's Rashida and you yes. know um, other people in in the but Biden this administration. Is the last couple of but years. this is only and look recent. At the attacks yes. she has to endure. These are very frustrating and, to say the least, let alone really uh, scary things that to realize that this is a reality that we still live in. There's still so much. Um, racism and bigotry and misunderstandings. And even, funny enough, in the Middle East, it sounds like people often like the narrative that the Middle East has always been in this constant conflict and upheaval, and this is what we know, but it's absolutely not true. For the empires that we've had in, in you know, over over these hundreds and thousands of years, for, for it to have functioned, we've actually functioned very well with different uh, religions and cultures were, you know, living together side by side. This is really a, a trope, you know, it's something that people like to say about the Middle East, but it's not it's the case. It's definitely a trope. Are some of the things you do a consequence of wanting to play a part in changing that perception? So, for example, yes. you have joined the Board of Trustees or invited to the Board of Trustees at Hamilton College, yes. your alma mater. Correct. You know, that's it's not a, it's not a very large school. It's it wasn't necessarily over the years a very diverse school, as I understand yes. it from the podcast and other other materials that I read. So, did you feel that, for example, such a role is partially to try to be more proactive about yes. changing that perception? One hundred percent. I think it's all about the idea of they always say, you know, you have the table, right? And you can be someone from the outside talking to the people sitting at the table to change things. You're, the likelihood of you being Correct. successful is very, it's very, it's going to be very low. If you're sitting at the table, it's going to be a lot higher, and it's even going to be better if, you know, it's more than getting a seat at the table, but it's how you actually change the table. <laughs> so the table has to change. If so you feel from the inside, you have a much yeah. more higher chance of. But it's, but this is a key thing. I like this. There's a very big difference between here's a table where let's say. There are seven men making decisions about, let's say, a particular corporation, and we'll add this woman to our table, then saying, let's change the entire dynamic of how this whole table works. Do you think they invited you because of that? Yes, I, mean, I think okay. they're, they're trying to rebuild from, from what I see, they're rebuilding back from zero. Instead they want of, multiple voices. Yeah, instead of saying, we're just going to add a couple here and there, it's like, how does this whole thing function? And in a way, 
they may not know that, but this is where my job comes in and other people who are, who are from different backgrounds um, or from smaller uh, groups that are not, were underrepresented before to really speak up and to say, look, this is not okay. Maybe you really should think about this. You know, this is what I felt, and I'm sure other students feel this now. Uh, maybe it's even amplified now, um, 20 years later. So how can we, you know, make this better? And it's part of our job to not just come up with ideas and to talk, but really we're here to listen. We're here to listen to the students and take consideration about what they're talking about and what are their, what are their main concerns. But, but I, I salute them, I have to say, yeah, for being very forward-looking. 100%. To the point you made on your podcast, I mean, typically when you think of a board of trustees of universities or colleges, you think of frankly, white men who write large checks. Yeah, you know, yeah. That's sort of your... True. And, you know, I don't think you've, you've fall, you fall into that category. So yeah. So that's uh, interesting. And, and um, I wouldn't have stayed if I felt I was just an addition. When we come back, we'll be talking to Manel about her own personal journey with mental health and how she has been channeling her anxiety as a mechanism to propel her forward after the short break. I wanted to take a minute and tell you about our friends at Monviso, one of our sponsors who make this show possible. Monviso is founded by an Italian entrepreneur right here in Dubai and has evolved into one of the region's most popular mineral waters sourced directly from the Italian Alps. We immediately connected with the Monviso's team vision and how giving back is such an integral part of their mission. Through their extensive recycling program and their Take Water, Give Life initiative, proceeds from every bottle of water sold is donated to Al Jalila Foundation to support its education and research. So stock up on still or mineral water by using our exclusive Monviso discount code, Lighthouse10, which you can redeem at store.monviso.com. Once again, the code is Lighthouse10, L-I-G-H-T-H-O-U-S-E-10. Welcome back. You're listening to our conversation with Manal Ataya, Director General at the Sharjah Museums Authority. I want to stay on the topic of college for a second and talk a little bit about mental health. Yes. Um, because and the reason I'm saying college is, for many of us, at least those that have traveled outside of their countries to go to college, it was the first time they were alone yeah. without their families, without yeah. a support network. Many people, including myself, uh, have experienced during that period and then beyond anxieties, all sorts of other issues that's come exploding out during this last year and a half during the pandemic. So talk to us a little bit about your relationship to mental health and why this is something you care so deeply about. Okay, I well, if I first talk about just you mentioned college, I remember um, I remember my first semester, I know I saw a counselor probably just towards the end of my second semester because I was quite plagued with these um, nightmares. I had a lot of nightmares that were um, obviously anxiety-driven, um, like that someone was going to die in my family, that I wasn't going to be home, you know, if this happened. You know, kind of very irrational, obviously, fears to a certain extent, but I think that's what happens when you are far from home for the first time and you feel that disconnect and... Um, you know, it, this is, of course, imagine, this is the age, again, I went to school in 97, so we didn't have WhatsApp and all these things where you can be in constant contact with people. You know, you'd have to FaceTime wait. your family. Yeah, you wait, that, wait for that call, maybe if week. you're lucky, once a week or whatever, and it would be very quick. There was that, plus the, shock, the culture shock. There really was one. I think 
I was uh, falsely uh, made to feel that I could be prepared to go to the U.S. because I spoke English well and because, you know, I... Yeah, growing up in Dubai, I mean, it's somewhat Americanized yeah, Western culture. A lot of, yeah. There's a lot of American like culture. Like a lot of people grew yeah, up in the Gulf. Media, let's say, consumption, and, you know, you're going to be fine. But that wasn't the case at all. And I did feel very different from other people um, because things did constantly shock me that everyone was like, I don't understand what the big deal is, uh, let alone also the culture of... Um, people speaking a lot about, you know, how they feel, going back to mental health, um, what's bothering them, what they're depressed about. And in our culture, it's we always been... We are not speaking about how we feel. You're not yeah. supposed to talk no. about those things. So I found it... I think people found me cold, which was very funny, because I'm not a cold person at all. But they would obviously share things that were very painful about maybe a breakup or a family issue. I remember that when I came back... Some of that obviously had changed me. I had become more vulnerable person. I had become much more of a person who would talk about my feelings. And during college, yeah, I had definitely issues with, um, I think, perfectionism. Um, Fear which, of failure. And I mean, yeah, many of us and do. a lot of anxiety, too. Yeah. I wanted to do so well. I put a lot of high pressure, on, pressure on myself, too. But also, my, you know, my, my family did, too. I mean, at the end of the day, they were spending a lot of money and they wanted me to, to do well. So there was all of that uh, combined. But I think me as a person, um, I mean, just frankly to say it, I, I have been and can, more than once diagnosed with GAD, you know, generalized anxiety disorder. It's a very serious thing. It's not something where you sometimes feel anxious or it's a phase thing. It's a constant chronic you have to worry about a lot of things. Um, and you know, it's, it can be very unhealthy because it can cause, obviously, sleep issues. It can cause you to, to, to not do certain things because you worry so much about them, even though they're quite simple. Um, and you can just, you know, and, but you complicate uh, things. But uh, funny enough, I read a book um, about three years ago when I was on holiday. I actually grabbed it because I liked the cover, <clears throat> which is really funny because it just shows you how life works. It was an octopus on the cover, and it said something like, um, befriend, I don't know, something to the effect of like to befriend the beast or whatever. I thought, oh, I like this cover. I like this octopus. I'm picking it up. And it turned out to be a book about anxiety. It turned out to be a book about a woman dealing with anxiety. But what I loved about the book was how she says, you know, as much as anxiety is something when you have it, you're always trying to fight it. You're always embarrassed about it. You're always trying to fight those feelings. Uh, you always feel like it's your enemy because it is in many ways. It stops you from doing things. It makes it hard to do things, uh, alienates you, etc. But she was like, but if you think about it from a different angle, you can embrace it and it can be kind of be your friend. And she talked about it in the terms of see it from the point of view of doesn't your anxiety make you, for Put example, this, this and that. work yeah. hard? Finish yeah. your work, more productive, be prepared for things, um, you know, achieve a lot. And it does, because when you're anxious... No doubt. You know what I mean? Right. You, you take more time to do things. Um, you don't... And Which is why we all need some substance of stress yeah, in our lives. Exactly. Or else we get anything done. The adrenaline helps you, yeah, to kind of complete things. It also talks about how it makes you more aware of other people. When you're anxious... So if I'm talking to you, um, Hashem, and I hadn't known you, my anxiety makes me think, well, I have to be... I have to be considerate what I say. I might say something that could hurt his feelings or what he just told me now, you know. So it makes me maybe listen better. It makes me more yeah. understanding. Um, other people who aren't 
will not will not give a, any second thought about those things. Part of it is to say, stop fighting it all the time, being angry that you have it because it's caused some you know, uncomfortable or miserable situations for yourself. But think about it also from what positive things it has done for you. And it has, it has done a lot, which is positive, which has made me do a lot it, of, it, it's very interesting finish a lot of because things of in course, my life. with a lot of us, the feeling, and I really appreciate you sharing this because I think obviously with someone like yourself who's highly accomplished and very successful in your career and your life, Maybe to the outside world, people would think, you know, she couldn't possibly have her own yeah. anxieties and her own insecurities. Yeah. And that's, obviously, that's never the case. No, of course. And, and I, so I really appreciate you sharing this. And I remember from my own personal sort of stories that one of the issues was I was very uncomfortable with that feeling and I tried to numb it in yes. many different ways. Yes. And you typically find very dysfunctional ways of exactly. trying to numb it. True, true. A, they don't work. They yes. backfire. Yeah. But then to your point exactly, until you get to the point where you sort of accept that you would have to be able to accept having some anxiety and that's okay yeah that's not always a very easy path no it's a very hard one i mean yeah don't get me wrong it's it's absolutely not easy and i'm still struggling with it yeah. i mean that's the honest answer but i i think you know you seem to have found productive ways of channeling. i'm trying yeah i'm trying to find more productive ways of channeling it and and accepting that you know i, I can't really change it. I can, I can manage it. You see, there's a big difference managing it, but I cannot get rid of it. it. It is a part of who I was. And when I actually even talked to my mom and other people, they're like, you know, you kind of had this even as a child. So from a very young age, even I was already this way. I remember being like this as a teen, but prior to that, I don't remember, but they said you always were, had like an overthinking mind. You were always okay. kind of worried about things. And um, of course, in, in its worst situations, when it's very triggered by things, it can, you know, as I said, be a very miserable experience. But when it's managed, it can, it can help you to a certain degree. And it can get you to, to do things in a certain way that I think other people might not be able to do it. Well, 100%. I mean, I'm sure we both know a lot of people that are kind of at the cusp of even like, you know, hypomanic or hypermania. And yes, they are yes. extremely successful because they have an insane amount of energy yeah. and are very productive. The point is you, that they don't kind of fall in the next bracket of becoming, you know, bipolar or yeah. where it becomes debilitating and they actually can't get stuff done. I mean, like to give you an example with, with COVID, I mean, you know, I was honestly quite, I, I was very depressed during COVID. There, were, there was a good chunk of COVID where, I mean, if, you know, clinically, I, I'm depressed at, at this point, but my anxiety helped me to keep forward. It, kept, it, it forced me to, to, um, to still get things done, to say yes to things, to, um, to, to work, even though my, my depression was trying to tell me, don't you do don't want to do anything, you just lay in bed, nothing matters, you know, have no motivation. But, but at this, funny enough, the anxiety was the other part of my brain that was saying, no, but you've got, you don't want people to think you're depressed. So you need to, you need to finish this and you need to do that. And you know, Manal, you're better than that. You can, you can still finish this. And you did, you did commit to that. So you should finish it. So in some ways it propelled you forward. Yeah, it actually. did propel me forward. That's the funny thing. You know, it, it worked, it worked for me in that sense. And I swear to God, if you look at my year during COVID, it's one of my most productive years. You know, I can see that. You got and a lot done. I had a lot done, but that was the, the kind of the, the anxiety that treated uh, a lot of the feeling of, of depression of, of COVID. I, I mean, I think just to end on, you know, on this note, I would just say that uh, I know people throw around anxiety a lot today 
in maybe in the last three to five years, but it is a serious condition. And if you do have it, you should see a, a proper person to help you and manage it in whatever ways you can. But I, I appreciate that there is a bit more talk about mental health in general in the UAE now. I think it's, it's something that needs to be done more of because too many, let's say, you know, great people out there, whether they're public figures or they're, you know, celebrities or whatnot, um, whether they should be or not. The point I'm making is they often are portrayed in a way that shows them to be like effortlessly oh, excellent at everything and that they do. Social media and, it's and, just, that and I think it. it's wrong. I think, uh, and I, some people do it because that's just how they feel. But other people, I think, are forced to do it. I think their environment, their family, or even their job says, you know, don't don't look weak, don't act like this, don't tell people personal things. So there's always this facade put on. Yeah. And I think that's a real shame because if you have a facade or let's say wearing a mask all the time, you will, you will never connect with anyone in a real sense. So you have to remove that sometimes and know when to kind of put your guard down and be like, I know what it feels like. I don't always feel so great. I don't always have the energy. I mean, even today is quite hard for me to do. Like, but I'm, I'm here. I'm, you oh, know I, what I mean? I'm going to give it what I can. But it's not, oh, and I just got up in the morning. It was like, I'm just going to go do a podcast because yeah. I'm just great at this stuff. And I'm going to go ahead. Actually, I was very nervous about it for days thinking, I, I need to prepare. But then I don't know how to prepare. And I had other things going on and I couldn't prepare. So then I was just like, you know, do I cancel? You know, these are all the anxiety starts telling you should I do really or not. I really appreciate that. I, I appreciate you sharing this. I think it's going good so far. So I sometimes <laughs> I think it was going great. Yeah, you realize um, you, you overthink I mean, it would be nice things. if Chirag wouldn't fall asleep, <laughs> but otherwise I think we did. <laughs> no, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. Uh, Thank you. You coming today and having this conversation with us and being so frank. I really think it's inspiring to me, certainly to a lot of people that are going to be Thank listening you. to us. Wishing you all the best and Thank hope to you. have you back here soon. Hashem, I, I mean, I should add that you're you're very easy to talk to. That helps a lot, I have to Thank admit. You. But um, it's been really, it's been great to be here too because I think um, there's so much that I, I feel we can all talk about and we should talk about yes. with, with people that are friends, family, or people we meet. And um, I think, like I said, if we keep these guards up all the time, we'll never get there. And it's a shame. Life is all about making connections with people. I mean, honestly, what else do you have at the end of the day? You don't take anything with you, but these wonderful memories and the love that you carry for people and those that love you back. So, I mean... Couldn't have said it better. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, it's been, it's thank really you. been an honor to be here. Thank you. That's all we have on this episode of The Lighthouse Conversations. Thank you for joining me. I'm Hashem Montasir. Our producer is Chirak Desai and our content director, Farah Sharif. You can connect with us on Instagram at the lighthouse underscore AE and listen to all our previous episodes in your podcast app or by visiting thelighthouse.ae slash podcast. We'll see you again in two weeks.